reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold his fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Can you see it? Hey, well, I had a very interesting lunch with George Costanza today. Great. We were talking about our lives, and we both kind of realized we're kids. We're not men. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes, we did. Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. <laughs> there is absolutely not. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Well, they're prisons! <laughs> Man-made prisons! You're doing time! You get up in the morning, she's there! You go to sleep at night, she's there! It's like you gotta ask permission to, to, to use the bathroom. There's a normal guy in the fire, there's a bathroom! <laughs> yeah, and you can forget about watching TV while you're eating. I can't. Because it's dinner time. And you know what you do at dinner? What? You talk about your dinner. Yeah. What was your day today? Did you have a good day today? Or a bad day today? Well, what kind of day was it? What was your day? It's that, Jerry. It's a sad state of affairs. And we had this talk. Oh, you have not! <laughs> not everyone sees marriage as something that's worth it. Some are like Kramer, right? In our um, culture today, for some, marriage has even become a bad word. If we could put one word on the current state of marriage in our culture, it's probably this. Pessimism. Pessimism. People in our culture, especially younger adults, believe that the chances of having a good marriage are not great. They believe that most marriages are boring. They believe that your choices are to be single and lonely or married and bored. They believe that most marriages don't work and the ones that are hanging on aren't happy. And they believe that living together first will improve the chances of making a good marriage choice. Now, here's what we know. As Christians, there is no other relationship, human relationship on the earth that is more important than this thing called marriage. It is amazing, but it is hard. It is joy and strength and comfort, but it is also agony and 
pain and exhaustion. It's blood and sweat and tears, but it's also protection and it's a victory that's found in the deepest human love possible. And what Paul, when he writes about it, the word that he uses is that marriage is a mystery. And not just a, a normal mystery, a mega mystery, a big mystery. Um, the word mega is translated in your text as profound. Marriage is profound. What he means is there's a huge secret and marriage can be a huge question mark. And we get that because after a day of failing to understand your spouse, it's easy at the end of the day just to sigh and give in and just say, I don't know, maybe I'll never know. I mean, marriage seems like an unsolvable puzzle at times. But... There's no deeper connection between two humans than this. And God thought it up. God himself arranged the first marriage. Adam um, is uh, able to see Eve for the first time. And he says, at last, the, the modern day would be hashtag yes. That's, that's it. And next to knowing God, knowing our spouse <laughs> is the most profound experience that you'll have on the earth. What we also know is this. That every one of those beliefs that marriage is dead or outdated are almost completely wrong. Here's the truth. Substantial evidence shows that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. And so what that means is that cohabitation is a cure that is actually worse than the disease. What we know is this, that it's true that about 45% of marriages end in divorce, but that's all people everywhere. By far, the greatest majority of divorces are people who marry before they're 18, or who have dropped out of high school, or who have had a child together before marrying. If you are not in those categories, then your chances of divorce are actually super low. The U.S. federal government lists more than 1,000 legal benefits of marriage. Married people have more wealth at retirement than divorced people do. Married men earn 10 to 40% more on average than single men with similar educations and job histories. Why is that the case? Because married people can hold each other to greater levels of accountability and responsibility and discipline than friends or family members can. Nothing matures your character like marriage. Married people are more healthy, both physically and emotionally. Married people produce happier, more stable, and more successful kids. Married people have better sex. That's one that the culture tries to tell you isn't true at every turn, but they're wrong. Married people live longer. And all of those stats are really cool, but here's the one I want you to grab onto today. The big stat is this, that the best studies, the longitudinal studies that, that follow people over a long period of time and a huge group of people show that 62% of married people today would respond, not that they are just happy with their marriage, but they are very happy with their marriage. Now that leaves about 38% that aren't in the very happy category, and lots of those people would at least be in the happy category. Add to that this, that studies show that two-thirds of those people who might not be happy now will be happy in five years 
or less if they just stay married and don't get divorced. Add all that up, do the math, carry the one, all that. What it means is this, that better than nine out of 10 marriages are either happy right now or they will be happy if they just stay put. Nine out of 10. Now that's empirical evidence, but it's not changing minds. Kramer lives, he lives in our world. The University of Virginia's National Marriage Project, uh, Project concluded the following. They said this, less than a third of high school senior girls and only slightly more than a third of high school senior boys seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternatives. And yet, this negative attitude is contrary to the available empirical evidence which consistently indicates the substantial personal as well as social benefits of being married compared compared to staying single or just living with someone. What does all that mean? It means this, that despite any logical reason to believe it, young people don't think marriage is worth it. Why is that? Some have suggested this, that it's because people have adopted an unrealistic idealism about marriage. People want the perfect soulmate. People want somebody who is very compatible, and what very compatible means is that they have to have a physical attractiveness about them, they have to have a certain sexual chemistry, and above all, very compatible means this, that somebody would be willing to take them as they are and not change them. One guy responded this way on a survey, if you're truly compatible, then you don't have to change. A few years ago, marriage was about us. But increasingly, more and more, marriage is about me. It's about me. And people are looking for spouses who are already complete, who are already pulled together as people, somebody that they won't have to change and who won't change them, somebody who is well-adjusted, somebody who is already happy, already emotionally healthy, already interesting, already content with life, and has, on top of all that, rock-solid abs. That's what people want. And you see what's happening. See, never before have we been so afraid of this marriage thing. And it's because we've created an ideal marriage scenario that no one can live up to. No wonder Kramer, Kramer said it was a prison, right? He didn't want any part of it. And if marriage is only about self-fulfillment, then young people should be scared. Because it means that guys need to find a woman who is a novelist slash astronaut slash knockout fashion model. That's what they need to find. And girls, you need to find a guy that is an NFL tight end slash road scholar that has his own foundation for at-risk kids and who has an art studio and paints and sculpts on the weekend. That's what you need to find. Those people don't exist, although, my wife thinks that Travis Kelsey is pretty close to the second. So whether today, I don't know how you stumbled in, okay? If you're single, there's something for you today. If you are marriage-looking, if you are marriage-sustaining, or if you are marriage-saving, here's, here's what we say in the marriage, marriage realm. It shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't. 
And love should just work. We really have no reason to think that, but we do. We, we wouldn't ever apply that logic anywhere else. We wouldn't sit down at the piano and just think, this should be easy, I should be able to do this. We wouldn't step into a batter's box with a baseball bat and expect immediately to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. It, this should be easy, this should just work. We wouldn't sit down to write the great American novel expecting the words just to pour out without any work or discipline. And yet, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to marital bliss, we assume that if we're compatible, it should just work without much work. Well, why is it so much work? And one of the goals that I have as we meet together here in the next few weeks is to give you each week one practical thought, one simple truth that if you put into practice, God will do a great thing in your marriage. And here's the first half of the, the one truth today, okay? Christian scriptures can explain to us why we have a, such a hard time finding compatibility. And here's what happy couples know all around you. They know this. You never marry the right person. Say it with me. You never marry the right person. Another way to say that is no two people are ever truly compatible. We can also say it this way. We always marry the wrong person. Now, calm down, okay? Uh, obviously, this is a great generalization. I want to affirm you. You marry the right person today, okay? I want you to turn, if you're married, turn to your spouse if they're here and say, you are the right person. Please do that. You are the right person. Yes, you did. But at the very same time, you didn't. Because no one really can. All of us are the wrong people to marry. Now, there are some people who are really, really, really the wrong people to marry. That's a different servant, okay? The rest of us, although we are the right people, we're still so incompatible with each other. And if you've been in marriage a while, you know that this is true. You never marry the right person. There are a couple reasons for that that we could give. One is that marriage changes you. Uh, marriage brings you into closer proximity to another human being than any other relationship can. And so because of this, the moment that you step into marriage, it will change you in ways that you never, ever expected. I want you to go back, if you're married, to those days where you were first learning to live with each other, and you know that this is true. People would come up to you, and you would, they would say, are you free Friday night? And your initial response was, absolutely I am. And then you would remember, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I have this ring thing. That means there's another person in my life. Oh, I guess I have to check with them if I'm free on Friday night, right? Some of you realized for the first time ever that you had tones in your voice that you never knew about until they were pointed out to you. Some of you finally learned the right way to hang toilet paper and the right way it should come off the roll. And the, whatever way you did before, it was not the right way, okay? That's what you learned. See, we change. And the kicker is that you can't ever know ahead of time what those changes will be. You can't know, you won't know who you or your spouse will really be in the future until you get there. Lewis Meads puts it really well. He says this, when I married my wife, 
I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. That's right. Now, here's the second reason why we never marry the right person. Biblically speaking, we can say this, because we are all sinful, and we're all broken. Another word for sin would be self-centered. And we all are. We are all curved in on ourselves. And believe it or not, if you're neurotic and selfish and immature, then you don't automatically become different than that when you put a ring on somebody else's finger. And when there's so much wrong with us inside, then we can understand all of the hard work that it's going to take to make something work with someone who is standing beside us who has just as many issues as we do. It's just like playing professional baseball or writing a great American novel. We should expect this thing called marriage to be difficult and challenging. Timothy Keller said this over the years. You will go through seasons in which you have to learn to love a person who you didn't marry, who is something of a stranger, you will have to make changes that you don't want to make, and so will your spouse. The journey may eventually take you into a strong, tender, joyful marriage, but it is not because you married the perfectly compatible person. That person does not exist. The right person isn't available at all. That's why you married your spouse. Now, supposed to be funny. I thought it was funny. I, you didn't. That's okay. All right. That's why Paul writes in our text this. He has one challenge in mind, one command. He says, submit. And he says it for everyone, not just married people. In verse 21, he starts the passage off this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in the rest of the chapter, he gives you three examples of what submission looks like. He gives you the example of husbands and wives. Then he gives the example of children and parents. And then he gives the example of masters and slaves. And the way we would update that would be bosses and employees. And his point is that no one who follows Christ can do so without incorporating submission to others as a guiding principle of their life. And the reason that submission is a command is not because your spouse is the right person to submit to, or your parents are the perfect parents to submit to, or your boss is the perfect boss to submit to. See, that's what we think. We, maybe our marriage is hitting a rough spot, and we immediately say, well, I would if she would. Or if he would only, then I would be. Okay? And what is that? What are we doing when we say that? What we're really saying is, I would submit if it was to the right person. But the right person isn't available. You never marry them. And if submission depends on the right person, then nobody ever submits. And so Paul gives a different reason for submission. If submission characterizes God's unfailing commitment to us, 
then that's why we submit. He committed to us and stayed committed to us even when we weren't committed to Him. He sent His Son who submitted to us, His perfect Son. And so we could say it this way, that Jesus, the Son of God, was the only right person, the only right person ever, and we can submit to Him. We, we don't have any problems submitting to Him because we see He's the right person. He's submitted to us. But man, when it comes to Him... When it comes to her, when it comes to my dad, my boss, my employee, are you kidding? Paul says, here's the new motive for your submission is Jesus. Jesus is the only right person. Look at what he did for you. And it is logical that you would submit to him. And when you submit to these other not really the right people in your life, what you're really doing is submitting to Jesus, and that's what we're after. It's out of reverence for Christ that we submit. And this whole picture of submission is where the mystery of marriage really starts. And if you're single today, it's where relationships in general will start. At the beginning, I used kind of a flippant definition of mystery uh, for marriage. I, I just, I said that mystery is, well, we'll never figure each other out. It's a mystery, right? But Paul doesn't use mystery in that way. Paul says, mystery is a secret. It's some unlooked for truth that God is going to reveal to you through his spirit. A mystery is something that you can't understand unless it's explained to you. And Paul says, here's the good news. God is explaining this mystery and how it should work. Look at verse 31. Paul quotes the first marriage ever. He goes way back to Genesis chapter 2. The one in the garden, there's a wedding. It's, it's uh, one that God planned. God sent the invitations. God did the flowers. God gave the bride away. God officiated the wedding. God DJed the reception. And he paid for the reception. Uh, look at verse 31. What does it say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God designed this thing called marriage. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. It's great. It's a mega mystery. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's an extra large hidden truth that can only be understood with God's help. And then he says, here's the help. What I'm talking about is Christ and the church, and he refers to an earlier verse, back up in 25, he's, where he said, Husbands, love your wife, just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so here's the super big, huge mystery about marriage that God is revealing. It's this, that the gospel not only explains marriage, but the gospel shows us how to be successful at it. From the beginning, God existed in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he expanded that circle to include human beings, Adam and Eve and everybody who came after. And what we've done as humans is we have rejected that way of living. God, we don't really want to be in your circle. We want to be in our own circle. And so we reject, but God stayed committed to this relationship. And so he sends Jesus to buy us back. And if we accept what he did on the cross, then we can be back in that circle of relationship with God. And not only that, but one day we will be united to him in heaven. And there's where the mystery is solved because we will be united with Christ 
just like a bride and a groom are united to each other in marriage. The two will become one. And when we receive God's love in Jesus, it means that one day we will be the bride of Christ. And so marriage on earth and the gospel message of being united with Christ at, for eternity are connected. The first is a picture of the second, the gospel of Jesus. And marriage explain one another. When God thought of marriage, he did so with the saving work of Jesus in mind. And that's the mystery. And it reveals to us how marriage should work the best. There's another goal that I have each week that we give, uh, that we talk together, and it's to give you principles that will help sort out the particulars. I think that's what Paul does here. In a couple a couple weeks ago, we gave you a little flyer and you know underlined the sentences that resonate with you most, and we we're going to try to tackle some of those. And the problem with that is that I really can't say who should mow the lawn. I really can't say who should change the diapers. No one can say that. But because those aren't the best questions. The best question is this. What does love require of me? When two people get on the same page in principle, then the particulars will work themselves out. And that's what Paul's doing with us here. He's giving us the principle that will sort out the particulars. If you want the secret and the mystery to marriage, it's here. The goal for all of us who are married is probably to get to the end of our life and have side-by-side -side burial plots. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. That's the goal. What, what did those people know that we don't? And it's here. Okay, the first part of it was, you'll never marry the right person. Here's the second part of it. So do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. You will never marry the right person, so do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself up. He gave himself up. Jesus' sacrificial service to us is what brings us into a deep union with him and he with us. And that's the secret. Paul is saying that's not just the secret to understanding what marriage is, but it's the secret to living marriage. Do you want a great marriage? Then give yourself up because you never marry the right person. So do for yourself or for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. And I want you to look just a little further, just for a couple minutes, at how Jesus gave himself up and why. You see, that he gave himself up so that a couple things could happen just and just like they make a difference for us when we try to live the Christian life, they will also make a difference for us in our marriage. Jesus gave himself up, first of all, to make us better. Verses 26 and 27. One of the Greek customs in marriage was that before the bride was taken to her marriage ceremony, she was taken to a stream or a river where she was bathed so that she could devote herself to some god or goddess. Okay, so here's how that would work. Like if you, they were in Athens and the goddess was Athene, then they would take the bride to a river there that was sacred to the goddess Athene and they would bathe the bride and then she would go to her wedding uh, ceremony. And what Paul is doing here is he's alluding to that Greek custom, but he's also alluding to a custom in Christianity that surely is baptism. Because that's what baptism is. Baptism is a washing away of sin. 
right? Baptism is when we receive forgiveness. It's being cleansed and receiving the Holy Spirit so that a person is consecrated from then on to God. When you made a personal confession of faith and you stepped into the baptism waters, Christ cleansed you, He forgave you, He gave you the Holy Spirit, and He made you right with God. You put on the clothes of Christ. And do you see then what the goal of Jesus is? Jesus' goal for us is our holiness before he, our, before God. He wants to make us better. That's why he gave himself up for us. He wants us to be clean and without blemish. It means to be blameless before God. That's what Jesus is doing for us. That was the goal. And so, a marriage is right when we do for our spouse what Jesus did for us. You don't marry the right person. You help make the right person person. And we're going to spend some more time on that in a week to come. But for now, I want you to ask yourself this. What is your life goal for your spouse? You're wondering, should I have one? <laughs> yes. Yes, you should. Our default is this. If I could only get them to put the dishes in the sink or in the dishwasher or where they belong, that's, that's our default, right? Then, oh, I would have a happy house and a happy marriage. That's not, that's not submission, is it? That's selflessness. Here's submission. If I could only help her love so that at the end of her life she can stand before God as a loving person. Oh, that's a goal. That's a goal. With our spouses, the default is to stand back and to point out the spots and the wrinkles and the faults. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus comes into our lives, and it's clear that we all have issues, it's clear that the church has issues, but Jesus doesn't point any fingers. Jesus puts all of his energy, all of his effort into fixing and cleansing us and removing the, stop, uh, the stains and the spots and the wrinkles. If we never marry the right person, then the goal has to be to help them become the right person. What if... You put your effort into helping your spouse with their junk instead of attacking them for it. That would be doing for them what Jesus has done for you. That would be submitting. He gave himself up to make us better. Do for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus. Secondly, he gave himself up to make us his own. To make us his own. Verses 28 to 30, and then we'll throw 33 in there. Because Paul gives us an incredibly true picture. We love ourselves. How many of you know that's true? We love yourself, our, ourselves. I will prove it to you. How many of you have clipped your toenails in the last few weeks? I only see like three hands. Some of you need to get down there. Okay? Alright? Toenails are proof that we love ourselves. That we will do whatever it takes to take care of and to love ourselves. Paul writes it this way. He says, we nourish ourselves. It means to bring up to maturity and to nurture ourselves. Here's the truth. We never have a problem putting a fork to our own mouth. Paul says, we cherish ourselves. It's literally to warm something up and to give it tender care. We clip our toenails. Why? Because we love ourselves and we want to be right with the world. And Paul's point here is that Jesus cares for his own body too. 
His own body is the church. And he clips his toenails too. He cares for his body, who is the church. And just like he cares for his body, you should care for your body. But guess who that is? The two will become one flesh. Your spouse is your body. Your spouse is as much your body as your toes are. And so loving your spouse is the same as loving yourself. So the question you need to ask yourself is, how am I nourishing and cherishing my spouse? Probably the most powerful question is this, what is your spouse's greatest need right now? Do you even know what it is? I'll give you a hint. In a very general way, Paul gives it to us in verse 33. Here's what Paul says. Wives, your husbands need respect. That's their greatest need. Paul says, husbands, your wife needs love. See, here's the thing. When we are little, when we're little boys, we're running around the backyard, here's what we need to know. That we can do it. That we can hit the ball. That we can run fast enough around the bases. We need to know we can do it. And when we're little girls running around in the backyard, coming in from after we play, here's what little girls need to know. That you're beautiful. That you are adored. That you are loved. And nothing changes. When you grow older and you put a ring on somebody else's finger, nothing changes. You still, if you're a guy, you still need to be told you can do it. If you're a girl, you're, you still need to be told you're beautiful, I love you, you're adored. That's your spouse's greatest need. Your spouse is your own body. Care for them is caring for yourself. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus. God made us his own, so make your spouse your own. I'm going to call the band up. And there are two marriage builders in your bulletin this week. They are actually in reverse order that I meant them to be. And that's my fault. So I want you to do this. Now, the first task you have this week is to discover what your spouse's greatest need is this week. Beyond they need respect and they need love, which is always the case, what is your spouse's greatest need this week? And do whatever it takes to meet that need. Maybe they need encouragement. Maybe they need affection. Maybe they need some attention from you. Maybe they need some sleep. So figure out a way to get that to them, okay? Number two, set a goal for yourself concerning your spouse. How will you help them to reach their full potential, to become the right person in God's eyes? I will help him or her by doing whatever it is so that he or she can Okay, fill in those blanks, write it down, and live it out. This is the mega mystery that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. When God thought of marriage, he did so with the saving work of Jesus already in mind. And marriage is the gospel lived out. It should always point us to the gospel. And the gospel is this, that none of us are the right person. But we were made the right person anyway. Because Jesus submitted himself and gave himself up. So husbands, do for your wife what Jesus did for the church.
Wives, do for your husband what Jesus did for the church. Give yourself up. That's the gospel. And happy couples know that it's also a recipe for a great marriage. Father, we thank you that marriage matters. We understand that in some mysterious sense, marriage is actually a rehearsal for what Jesus will do one day with all of us who call on his name. We will be united to him and he with us. And we will stand together in pure white, without stain, without blemish. Father, there's only one reason that that's possible, and that's because Jesus has submitted himself to us. So help us to submit to each other, just as he has to us. Help us to make each other into the people we could never be otherwise, just like Jesus has done that for us when it comes to you. Help us to be husbands who submit to wives. Help us to be wives who submit to husbands. Help us to be people who submit to the Savior Jesus, who submitted first to us. And it's in the submitting name of Jesus that we pray. Everybody said, I'd like you to stand, we're going to sing a song. And uh, the song is Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Have you given yourself to the one who has given himself for you today? Maybe you need to talk about that. We would love to do that. Find me after the service, find one of our staff members, and we would love to help you take the next step to know who Jesus is. Let's sing it.